And there's also strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. Then verse number 28, but ye are they who have continued with me in my temptations or my trials. I appoint unto you a kingdom as my father hath appointed unto me that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee. And then verse number 35, and he said unto them, when I sent you without purse and scripts, shoes, latch ye anything, and they said nothing. Then said he unto them, but now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and so on. So all that was present at the very first occasion when the Lord instituted the supper. We see that there was rivalry, there was the exposure of the human heart, there was a focus on the future, there was preparation for service. All of that was involved in the very first occasion that the supper was instituted. In the Gospels, we have the institution of the supper. In the Acts, we have the implementing of the supper. And in, the, in, the, in Corinthians, we have the instructions concerning the supper. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians now. And chapter 10, first of all. First Corinthians 10 and verse number 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion, our participation, our fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one body, sorry, one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Now look down in chapter number 11. It's of interest to consider that since 1 Corinthians was written before the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 1 Corinthians was probably the first recorded information concerning the Lord's Supper. That believers would have had 1 Corinthians in their hand before they had Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So that when Paul says, I received it of the Lord, he received it from the Lord directly and recorded it and it is without all of the uh, historical record that Matthew, Mark, and Luke had provided. This would have been chronologically, time-wise, the first recorded truth relative to the breaking of bread of the Lord's Supper. Now look at verse number 17. We'll take time to read. I know it's very familiar. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For, first of all, when you become together in church, I hear there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper, but for an eating, every one taketh before other his own supper. One is hungry, another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in, and despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, or the same night in which he was being betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. In the same manner, also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new testament, again the new covenant in my blood. This do you as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me, for as often 
As you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show, you do proclaim the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation or judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And here are some of the chastening that occurred. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Now that will probably be more than sufficient for us to, to look at this evening in considering the centrality then of the Lord's Supper. Just a few things, maybe just a, as a background, just to dispel misunderstandings that have arisen over the centuries relative to the Lord's Supper. Hardly needs to be said that when we gather to remember the Lord Jesus and we take of the emblems, has nothing to do with what was commonly taught for many centuries, either transubstantiation or another word, I think Martin Luther kind of hedged a bit, called it consubstantiation, the idea that somehow the body and blood of Christ uh, become infused into the emblems, into the bread and into the cup. Hardly needs to be said. But also, confusion exists in the evangelical world that somehow that partaking of the emblems is what's called a means of grace. That, that somehow you become uh, a better Christian and uh, that by partaking of the emblems, you're actually somehow experiencing something very spiritual. And uh, of course, that's, that's not it either. Because we're going to be looking at symbols so that we have to understand not only is the truth of, tr of transubstantiation wrong, not only is the truth of the means of grace wrong, but any idea that in those emblems are types is also wrong. Those who preach that the, the bread and cup are types then begin to stress that it has to be unleavened bread because if it's a, a type of the body of Christ, it, it can't have any leaven in it and so on. And, uh, but we have to remember that all, sim all types and all shadows were done away at Calvary. There are no more types, no more shadows. We're left with five symbols. Symbols are different than types. Symbols just proclaim a particular truth. The symbols we have in the New Testament, a body of water. For baptism, we have a long hair of a sister, a covered head of a sister. We have a cup of wine and we have a loaf of bread. Five symbols left for this dispensation, all of which declare tremendous truths. If you think of it, in those five symbols are portrayed or depicted cardinal truths of the Christian faith. In the bread, we have his incarnation and we have a sacrifice. In the cup, we have his, his death. In baptism, his death, burial, and resurrection. In the covered head of the sister, we have his headship and coming glory. So all of these symbols are proclaiming different truths that we hold very dear and that are cardinal truths relative to the word of God. So just to, to clear away a few things that have been built up over the centuries relative to the emblems and the fact that they are merely symbols that we have that are given to us to remember the Lord. So we want to speak now about the remembrance of, of the Lord Jesus. I think, first of all, first of all, it is an incredible thing to think of the, the simplicity that marks us as we gather 
to remember the Lord Jesus. Most men and, uh, and countries as well, when, they, uh, when their desire is to commemorate a hero or to remember some great deed, it's usually a great monument. If you're in England, Trafalgar Square with Nelson, and we have our statues all across the country of Washington and Grant and other great heroes of American history, men to whom we give appreciation, men to whom we give deserving honor because of what they have done for the country. I was just uh, reading recently, if I've never been there, I'd like to get there someday, uh, near Flanders Field in Belgium, in the city of Ypres, uh, since 1928, every night at 8 p.m., they do the very same thing. They sound the last post in honor of all of the British soldiers who died defending that city during World War I. They have an elaborate ceremony every night at 8 p.m. to honor, to, to remember, to call to remembrance. And they, they read out the list of names. And at times, great dignitaries are there and great ceremonies are done. Since 1928, every night, they've been doing the same thing because they're calling to remembrance those who died heroically to save them. We have just a loaf of bread and a cup. It, it's so, uh, it is so insightful into the humility and the grace of the Lord Jesus. He would take emblems that have absolute availability throughout the entire globe there's, there's no place on earth where there's not something that is bread-like and, uh, and a cup. Uh, the, the simplest of emblems, the, 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 the most available of emblems, uh, so typical of his humility and of his grace. He would not have an elaborate ceremony. He would not have some great pomp and circumstance concerning remembering him. It's just an absolute simplicity that we gather to remember the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me just then, if I can, I know I have a number of things here to try to communicate. First of all, the remembrance of the Lord Jesus, the Lord's Supper, it is a declaration of our faith, of our hope. We are declaring, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Virtually every place in the New Testament that that word ye do show, ye do proclaim, virtually every place that is used, it is used for a, an oral public proclamation of truth. So we are proclaiming the Lord's death. As men rise to their feet to lead the assembly, as hymns of praise are sung, we are declaring to the universe this tremendous truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Ye do proclaim the Lord's death till he come. So we are gathering not to get something, not to somehow become more spiritual because we're partaking of emblems. We are coming together to remember the Lord and to proclaim his death to an onlooking universe. Some people sometimes say, who are we proclaiming it to? We're proclaiming it to the universe. Uh, if people are indifferent and ignorant of it, but we're still proclaiming it. We're telling it forth. And so we are gathered together and we, we have symbols, as we've already mentioned, that we have before us to call to remembrance the Lord Jesus. But now, again, bear with me, please. These are very simple things, primarily for the sake of younger believers. There are two, not one, a loaf and a cup. 
Why two and why separate? I mean, wouldn't it have been enough just to have a cup, his blood that was shed for us? That would have, that would have spoken of his death. Wouldn't just a cup have been enough? Or wouldn't just a loaf have been enough? His body given, a sacrifice. Why? Why two? Why separate? What's involved? Just a few things to suggest. Number one, when body and blood are separated, that's, that's death, isn't it? When blood is separated from body, that's death. But also, it gives us insight into the vastness of Calvary's work. First of all, you need a body to suffer. And you shed blood when you die. Christ both suffered for sins and he died. One is judicial. He died. The other is moral. He paid for sin. So you have him suffering and you have him dying. Suffering in his body, shedding his blood and dying. But also, when he shed his blood, he shed his blood for my sins. His body was given not just for what I did, but for what I am. In his body, he took my place, and God said, I am done with, I'm done with A.J. Higgins. He's out of sight anymore. So that he died for what I have done. That's, my, that's his blood. He died for what I am. That is his, his body that was given. So we have both those things. What I did, what I am, my sins, and myself in the two emblems that are before us as well. But the cup also has another significance. We read of it in Luke chapter 22. We read of it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It is the cup of the new covenant. A new covenant. Now just uh, bear with me again for just some background. There are four major covenants that God made that he takes full responsibility for. Now we're putting aside the covenant he made with Israel called the law that Israel had to keep and uh, as a result they failed and, the, and so on. We're talking about four covenants God has made that are totally his responsibility. First of all, there was a covenant with Noah. Then there was a covenant with Abraham. Then there was a covenant with David. Then there is this covenant called the new covenant. The covenant with Noah involves the entire earth. With Noah, with every creeping thing, so the entire globe, all of mankind, is under the protection of the covenant made with Noah that God would not destroy the earth again with a flood. Covenant with Abraham was made with a, with a, a nation, the nation of Israel. The covenant with David was made with just one family. And the new covenant is made with believers made with us. We are under the, under the blessings of the new covenant, and of course, he will confirm it with Israel restored in a coming day. Now, the covenant with Noah guaranteed a habitation. I will never again destroy the earth. There's, the earth is preserved. It guaranteed a habitation. The covenant that he made with Abraham guaranteed a homeland. This land is yours. This is where you're going to be. The covenant with David guaranteed an heir of your seed will sit upon the throne. So a habitation, a homeland, an heir. But there was one big problem. And that's what the new covenant addressed. 
See, none of those covenants dealt with the ultimate problem. You know what the ultimate problem is? Our hearts. He says, I will write my law in their hearts and in their minds. So the new covenant has dealt with the problem of our hearts, our sin. And on the basis of that covenant, God will be able to fulfill all of his other covenantal provinces to Abraham, to Abraham's seed, to David, and to all of us. So those four major covenants. Now, all of those covenants were given a sign. Noah's covenant, sign in the sky, the bow. The bow without an arrow, telling of peace rather than storm. The covenant with Israel was given the sign of circumcision and the Sabbath. The, rather, I'm sorry, the sign with Abraham was given the sign of, the covenant with Abraham was given the sign of circumcision. The covenant with Israel was given the Sabbath. That's why it has nothing to do with us. It was the sign of the covenant God made with Israel under the law. The Sabbath keeping was their sign. The sign with David, not quite as clear, but he does say on two occasions, Psalm, is it 89 or 87? And again, in, Deuteron in uh, Jeremiah 33, that, uh, you see the moon? If you can take the moon out of the sky, if you can change my covenant with, with the sun and with the moon, then I'll break my covenant with David. And the sign of the new covenant? It's a cup. This is the new covenant. So that when we take that cup on the Lord's Day morning, now we're going to see that both the bread and the cup have several meanings, several, several things to teach us. But one of the things that we are doing when we take that cup on the Lord's Day morning, we are confessing that every blessing, it's a cup of blessing. That's what we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's a cup of blessing. Every blessing we will ever enjoy is on the basis of that blood. Nothing to do with us. So as you take that cup, you're, you're not just uh, taking a, a sip of something and uh, recognizing he died from you, but conscious that every blessing, all the covenantal blessings of God that I will enjoy eternally, all rest solely upon what that cup speaks of, of his blood shed for me upon the cross. So we are reminded then of the, of the declaration of what we are doing on the Lord's Day. As well, when you think of, uh, of his blood being shed and the covenantal blessings, it tells you, reminds you of two things. Number one, what he took away. This is the cup of the new covenant which is shed for the remission of sins. I am putting sins away by this blood. But it's also the cup of the new covenant. It also tells us what he brought in. And what he brings in is always greater than what he takes away. That's God's way. Whenever God takes something away and brings something up, it's always, what he brings in is always greater. And what he brought in in blessing is far greater than what he took away in taking away our sins. So the cup speaks of what he's taken away and what he has brought in and what we enjoy now. So it is a declaration of our faith, a declaration of our hope. It also is a display of our obedience. It's a display of our obedience. This do in remembrance of me. Now, there really were two, two commands, and I sometimes think we major on one and we minor on the other. 
Two commands in the upper room the Lord Jesus Christ gave, actually. This is the one we're fairly good at keeping. This do in remembrance of me. But he gave another command. The other command was to love one another. And uh, we do this one because we can visibly do it and people say, oh, you're obeying it. Tragically, we fail to do the other many, many times in loving one another as we ought to. But here is at least, so we're dealing with this right now, not with love one for another. We're dealing with a display of, of, of our obedience. It had its origin. He says, I received this from the Lord. This is not optional. This is not a mere ceremony that Paul has instituted or that uh, church fathers brought together. This is something that came from him. And the wording of 1 Corinthians 11 is most significant. The night in which he was being betrayed. While Judas was out, finalizing his deal, his nefarious deed with the leaders of the nation, the Lord Jesus was taking bread and taking a cup. Now you may say, well, what's the significance there? Significance there is that he was thinking of us. He was actually thinking of us while men were plotting his death. He was looking down through the ages and he wanted to, to keep affections warm. He wanted to keep hopes alive. And so he instituted a, a very, very simple remembrance that we might do so. So it, 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 we have its origin we have the order. It's the only assembly meeting where the order is given to us. The bread and then the cup. It's the only assembly meeting. It's the only assembly meeting where we're told what day, the first day of the week. Now, it's very likely, especially if you read Acts 20 and some other portions, it is very likely, and this, you know, we're not going to hold people to uh, feel that you have to do this, but very likely that everything that believers did in the first century, maybe even the second, they did on the first day of the week, and they did at night. A large number were slaves. They didn't have the option of having uh, Monday night off for a meeting or Tuesday night off for a meeting. They would have just maybe a Sunday night, and they would gather together, and they would probably break bread at night, and then they would have ministry, teaching. Paul preached until midnight. They would likely have an opportunity for prayer, so, so that... It was probably all gathered together into one occasion. But nevertheless, the breaking of bread, we're told the order of the meeting, and we're told the day of the meeting. Maybe I should do this, because some may think uh, we're way offline. Turn to chapter 14 for just a minute, if you will. And this is just a uh, kind of a sidetrack for just a moment. Just to show you, some may say, well, why do we sing? And why do we get up and give thanks? And uh, why do we read the scriptures? And is this all just tradition? Well, look at 1 Corinthians 14 for just a minute. Here is what they did in Corinth in the first century when they met together in their gatherings. Look at verse number 15. What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit. I will pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit. I will sing with the understanding. Verse 16, Else when thou shalt bless. That means to speak well of. When I shall bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupies the room of the unlearned say amen at thy giving of thanks? So they were giving thanks, seeing he understands not what you're saying. For thou verily givest thanks well. The other is not edified. And then he speaks in verse 19 of teaching. So they sang. They prayed. They gave thanks, they blessed, they taught from the word of God. 
So we're doing the very same thing today. So we have scriptural warrant in the pattern of scripture. We are seeing how a a New Testament church functioned and all of that was part of the, the, the functioning of a New Testament assembly in the very, very first century. So we're reminded then here of the origin and the order, and we have, of course, the, the observation. Now, mention that first day of the week, Acts chapter 20, elsewhere as well, we're reminded about not only when, but who and where. They that gladly received his word were baptized, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, which led to a fellowship, which was expressed in the breaking of bread, and which was sustained by prayer. You cannot reverse that order. Salvation, baptism, truth, fellowship, the fellowship expressed by the breaking of bread, we'll see that in a few moments, and then it is sustained or empowered by by prayer. We mentioned earlier, yesterday rather, that one of the hallmarks that Paul speaks of in chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2 is, not only were they saved, not only were they saints, not only were they separated, but they were submissive to the claims of lordship. That meant they bowed to the word of God in every area of their lives and owned him and his authority in their lives as as Lord. And also, it was always linked with the New Testament church. So that means if... uh, If you decide to go on a cruise with some friends and uh, it's Lord's Day and you're off the coast of Greece and uh, you think, you know, maybe we ought to remember the Lord here on board ship, a few of us here, it is a testimony of an assembly. It's an assembly declaration. It's, It's the part of the testimony. Someone mentioned last night, I think it was our brother David in prayer, the assembly is pillar and ground of truth. As ground or bulwark, we protect this truth. But as pillar, we publish it. We proclaim it. Here's one way we proclaim it. We are a testimony as to the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. And the assembly has the responsibility of doing that when it comes together to to remember the Lord Jesus and to proclaim his death until he comes. So it is a declaration of our faith in a display of our obedience. It also defines our fellowship. It defines our fellowship. Now, you have to go back to chapter 10. Paul says, he speaks of the cup first and the bread. He reverses the order in chapter 10 for good reason. But just for now, just consider this, that uh, what he says is, the bread which, which we break, is it not our communion in the body of Christ? In other words, what we're saying as you take from that loaf, one thing you're saying is this, that I am identifying myself with his body that was put upon a cross to die for me. I'm identifying. I mean, for a first century Christian, that would be a pretty big thing to do. To identify themselves with a man the world labeled a criminal and, a, and an imposter. We're identifying with him. We're also identifying the fact that it was for me that he died. But he says, there's something else you're doing as well. He says in chapter 10, he says, for we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. He says, you are saying that you are in fellowship with everyone else in the company who is partaking of that bread. That you are actually saying that this is the fellowship to which I belong. We are one body. Now, this is not the church, the body of Christ. 
because everyone is partaking of this loaf. He says, what you're doing is you are saying, as you partake of that loaf, that you are in fellowship with everyone. You all are in fellowship together relative to what you're doing and to the person you're gathered to, and it defines your fellowship. Now, there's a very... Of course, he's saying that in the context of believers who were going elsewhere for fellowship. So when I come to chapter 10, now try, try to grasp this because I think this is, if you want to have a takeaway, take away this tonight from the meeting. In chapter 10, the Lord's Supper defines the sphere, my sphere of fellowship and how I behave when I'm not here. He says, you can't be going there, you can't be going there, you can't be doing this, you can't be doing that if you're in fellowship here. So partaking of the emblem on a Lord's Day morning determines my behavior when I'm not here. What about chapter 11? Chapter 11, Paul says, partaking of that loaf should determine how you behave when you are here. He says, you're eating and drinking and you're shaming those that are poor and you're, uh, you're, you're bringing reproach. And he says, as you partake of that loaf, it, it should determine how you behave when you're here. So now just put the two chapters together. Partaking of the loaf should control my behavior when I'm here. Partaking of the loaf should control my behavior when I'm not here. That pretty well takes our whole life, doesn't it? You're either here or not here. I mean, some might be somewhere else, but most of us are either here or not here. Uh, so it's really it really is defining our behavior. It's really controlling my movements in life. Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting that uh, other places are idols, temples. Don't misunderstand me. But what I am saying is the principle is this. It defines my sphere of fellowship. And it controls where I go and what I link myself with because I've linked myself with other believers and with the body of Christ. So it defines my fellowship and controls my behavior. Just a, maybe a word uh, when we're thinking about defining fellowship. I hope I'm not going to be uh, getting into trouble for saying this. We meet on a Lord's Day morning, and we, we meet in a circle. And I have to say, it is a tradition. But I think it's a good tradition. Some might say, well, I thought we meet in a circle because the Lord's in the midst. The Lord's in the midst tonight, and we're not meeting in a circle. The Lord's in the midst at every meeting. But the, the lovely thing about a Lord's Day morning when we're partaking of the emblems is that Everyone is equidistant or everyone is virtually equidistant. Everyone, no one is like tonight, I'm up here, you're out there. Uh, on, on a Lord's Day morning, everyone is just on the same level. Everyone's gathered together. And we're expressing by our physical appearance a spiritual truth of our unity and our oneness around the person of Christ. But as well, some may say, well, why do we have a a back seat or a side seat just on a Lord's Day morning and not on a meeting like this. Because it's on a Lord's Day morning as we break the bread and take from the cup, we are expressing our fellowship in its purest form. I mean, there's expressions of fellowship here tonight. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells me that as we partake of that loaf, we are visibly and audibly, well, not audibly, but visibly proclaiming our fellowship with each other. 
And so it is so appropriate that we, we express that by our, our very seating configuration. But if for some reason it were impossible to have a circle, again, we're not uh, somehow violating Scripture. Traditions can be one of three. It can be one of three kinds of traditions. You know, it's like uh, if you want to defeat something in Congress today, you just call it a Republican bill, and uh, the left raises all kinds of alarms, and immediately it gets castigated in the press. Well, if you want to get rid of something in the assembly, call it a tradition, and everyone begins to come down on it, and we've got to get rid of it. But really, there are three forms of three types of traditions. There are bad. There are bad traditions. The Lord Jesus speaks of traditions of the elders, speaks of traditions of the fathers. He speaks of your traditions. And what was key to all of those traditions was this. They set aside the Word of God. They introduced something that negated what the Word of God said. They were bad traditions. But then there are biblical traditions. Paul speaks about keeping the traditions. In fact, if we, were, if we looked at the very beginning of this chapter, in verse number 2, he speaks about the ordinances or the traditions. Tradition just means something handed down. So prior to the inscripting of the Word of God, truth was handed down. And Paul speaks in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 3 about the traditions, about keeping the traditions, so that there can be biblical traditions, truth that was handed down from the Apostle Paul to assemblies, to Timothy, and so on. So there can be bad traditions and biblical traditions, but then there are beneficial traditions. And one of them is sitting in a circle. Another is everybody knowing what time the meeting starts. She might say it's a tradition for us to have our meetings at 8 o'clock. Just a tradition. Well, that's a very helpful one. If no one knew what time the meetings began, you know, some would be coming at 6, some at 7, some at 8, and some would just stay home and figure, I don't know what time, so why bother? And, uh, and the moment you change, you know, you say, well, look, it's just a tradition. We're going to stop that. We're going to start having meetings at 7.30. When you've had your second meeting at 7.30, you've now started a new tradition. So getting rid of one tradition simply brings in another when it comes to things like that. So be very wary of just labeling everything as a tradition and getting rid of it. There are traditions which are beneficial, and while they may not have chapter and verse, they do express truth, and they are in keeping with truth. So sorry to take a, a sidetrack there, but declaring our faith, displaying our obedience, defining our fellowship. We're not doing well. I've got nine points in 15 minutes. Okay. Uh, quickly now. Uh, it dignifies our gatherings. It is the Lord's Supper. Actually, two expressions used. It is the breaking of bread, and it is the Lord's Supper. One expresses absolute dignity, doesn't it? The Lord's Supper. And the other, total simplicity, the breaking of bread. So that uh, you have both brought together. Simplicity and dignity brought together in these two terms. Now, it's actually not called a feast. I know our hymns speak of it as a feast, and we sing of it as a feast, and sometimes we, we speak about the feast, but it's called the Lord's Supper. It's called the breaking of bread, called the remembrance, but it, it gives tremendous dignity to, to the assembly to remember that we're gathered to one who is the Lord. He's the Lord. It's the Lord's Supper. It's His. We've come together to remember Him, to remember not just His, His life and death, but His coming glories, His coming majesty, His coming greatness. It gives a, it gives a reminder to the assembly of the... Um, look what I say, what we were speaking of last night, that we are linked with a man the world despised, the world rejected, the world thought little of. Reminds us that we are counterculture. 
We will never be mainstream culture. If we ever become mainstream culture, we are totally out of the mind of God. We will always be counterculture to our society. It gives dignity to our gathering. It dignifies our gatherings. Another thing maybe you've never thought about is this. It also details our doctrines. Now let me explain that. That may take a bit of explaining. This is not a pat on the back. This is really the Lord's wisdom, not ours. We have been preserved as assemblies. We have been preserved in large, large measure from doctrinal errors concerning the person of Christ. All of the sects out there are wrong somewhere on the person of Christ. And tragically, even in some mainstream Protestant churches, there's absolute error concerning the person of Christ. Some would say the virgin birth is just a myth. In fact, that's been said. Just a, a myth to explain away a, a, a very unusual event. And uh, the idea that Christ could have sinned or the idea, uh, some of the ideas are blasphemous that are present in mainstream Protestantism. But we have been preserved. Now, there are two or three reasons. Number one is each assembly is autonomous. That's the Lord's tremendous wisdom, which means we don't have a hierarchy which sends doctrine down to all of us that we then have to obey. Every assembly stands on its own, accountable to the Lord for its truth. And as a result, no one is imposing truth on the assembly that we all have to bow to, as happens in large denominational circles. But more than that, have you ever thought how that on every Lord's Day morning, we verbally give testimony to virtually every truth concerning the person of Christ in our worship. And that's repeated week after week. One brother gets up and speaks about his eternal existence, the glories he had before the world began. Someone else will mention his virgin birth. Someone else will mention his spotless humanity, his perfect life, his grace and his ministry. Someone else will mention his literal death burial, and resurrection. Someone else will mention his ascension. And, and as we go through a morning meeting, in our hymns, as well as in our worship, our, our audible worship, virtually every doctrine is repeated week after week after week. Every doctrine is reinforced. Every doctrine is ingrained in our minds. And Scripture is quoted. It's not just a matter that we're brainwashed to believe certain things. Scripture is quoted to substantiate all of those truths. And as, as we go, and it just, our doctrines are detailed every single week, and we, we're reinforced in all of that. And we are, we're very, very sensitive to anything that, that, that deviates from the doctrines concerning the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, tremendous value that it has preserved us. Let me just mention one or two other things. I'll just, I'll just briefly touch on two or three other things and then close. But I want to just touch on the, since we're dealing with detailing of the doctrines, just our participation on, on a Lord's Day morning and uh, how, we, how we participate. The need for preparation. Now, I am speaking, this, 
To get this straight, I'm speaking to sisters as well as brethren. Every single believer should come to the breaking of bread prepared. Prepared. Now, that doesn't mean you come ready to, to get up and, and preach a sermon, but it does mean you come with something that you would like to offer. Now, our sisters do it silently. Our brethren do it audibly. But everyone comes to give something. Now, listen to what the writer to Hebrews says, and it's significant. Because you all know, if I were to ask you, what is, what is the writer of the Hebrews stressing in those final chapters of Hebrews? You would tell me, he's stressing that there are no longer any sacrifices. One sacrifice for sins forever. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There is no longer any sacrifices for sin. This man after he had offered one sacrifice. And time and again, in various ways, and through various means, the writer comes at this same point. No more sacrifices comes to chapter 13 and he says, well, wait a minute, there are sacrifices. He says, the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of your lips, giving thanks to your name, to giving thanks to his name. With such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Now, is what you bring on a Lord's Day morning a sacrifice? Has it cost you anything? You say, what do you mean cost me something? It's going to take time. It's going to take time as you read your Bible to gather material for worship, for Thanksgiving. Now, we should be doing that every day. As you're reading your Bible daily, you should be worshiping daily as well, thanking God daily for His Son. But as you're reading, trying to collect here and there a thought that... Uh, Paul, uh, Paul, sorry, the writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, speaks of the fruit of your lips, something that's developed, something you've thought of, something you've enjoyed through the weekend and you've developed. And he, he says, I want you to be prepared. And he says, uh, I, I want you to present it when you come. Now, our sisters do it silently, of course. But many times, I think most of our sisters would admit to this, that if they're enjoying something, they frequently find that a brother gets up and says something very similar. Or someone gives out a hymn which is just in keeping with what they've been thinking of. But it should cost us something to be worshipers, to gather that which we can bring for, for worship. <clears throat> so he speaks about preparation, he speaks about presentation, and he speaks about participation. Now for the sake of maybe a few of the younger men who are here, don't get hung up don't know a better word to use. Forgive my vernacular. Don't get hung up on the idea there's got to be a theme. And I better make sure I'm, I'm following the theme of the meeting. And I wonder what the theme is. Let the Spirit of God take care of that. If you're enjoying something, if there's something that has really touched you and, and you'd like to tell the Father about it, just do it. And allow the Spirit of God to blend everything together. We've come to remember Christ. Now that... That's, the, that's basically the parameter for our, our worship. We're not here to pray and, and request things. We're not here to, uh, to preach to others and tell them all about the uh, exegesis of Ephesians. We're here to remember the Lord. And we do it through the Word of God. Maybe that's another thing I should mention. 
Young Christians sometimes think, remembering the Lord, you know, I sit there and I try to, try to envision Christ, I try to envision Him in His life, and His... Uh, no. You remember Christ through the Word of God. That's how you remember Him. You were given the Word of God to remember Christ through His Word. So it's the Word of God you bring to your mind. You're not trying to conjure up visions, trying to conjure up images, and trying to imagine what it would... No, you're here to think about what the Word of God says about Christ. That's how you remember him, through his word. And you come and you present, and you, you give to God that which you're able to enjoy. Now, never worry. Never worry that, well, you know, I don't have anything really, I don't have anything that God doesn't know about his son. <laughs> You'll never have something God doesn't know about his son. Never. But, you know, it must delight the heart of God to find people on earth who are enjoying exactly what he is enjoying about his son. Must bring him tremendous, tremendous delight to see a sister who is quietly thinking of Christ and enjoying some thought that she's read through the week and she's thinking about it and it's exactly what has thrilled the heart of God from eternity past. All of you with children and grandchildren know what I mean. You delight in your children, and along comes some stranger and says, that's a, that's a lovely child you have, really a cute little girl you have, and you know it. But because they appreciate it, it means just a little something extra, right? That they appreciate what, what you've been enjoying all the time. Now, the father, that's, that's only a faint picture of a father's heart and how much he delights in his son. So never fear that what I'm bringing is not new enough or uh, is not novel enough. If you've enjoyed it, just offer it to God as, as the fruit of your lips, as the sacrifice of praise, giving thanks to his name. We mentioned, uh, we read together in Luke chapter 22, and we're reminded here, the Lord's Supper not only declares our faith, not only displays our obedience. It not only defines our fellowship, not only dignifies our gatherings, not only details our doctrines, but it delivers from pride. Reminded of pride at the very first occasion, Luke chapter 22. Who was going to be the greatest? Uh, if there was ever an occasion where, where the Lord was gracious, he's telling them about his death, about his sufferings. They're arguing who's the greatest. Interesting, isn't it? When you're reading in Matthew and Mark, Matthew and Mark tells us that in the upper room they sang a song. When you come to Luke, Luke doesn't mention a song because there was strife. So, so they're fighting among themselves and they're not singing. And I think that's true when we get friction, feuding, the song goes out and strife comes in. So there was pride at the very first supper. There's nothing that delivers from pride like remembering what we did, what we did to our God creator when he was here. That the summation of our wisdom, the pinnacle of our discernment, the expression of our hearts was to put him upon a cross not only unworthy of life, unworthy of earth, 
cast out of his own universe. And it reminds us of what's in our hearts. I'll have to close. We read in, in Luke chapter 22, we could look at it here as well. It focuses on the future, doesn't it? Do this in remembrance of me until I come. Focus, it, it prepares for service. The Lord Jesus not only focused their attention on the future, a table in my kingdom to sit at my table, eat at my, and so forth, but uh, he says now, in my absence, there's service. He says, uh, when I sent you without script and shoes, lacked you anything? No, but now he says, him that had, so he, he's getting them ready for, and the Lord's Supper, it, the centrality of it to the assembly, it not only brings us all on the same level, humbles human pride, but it really directs us in our service. It prepares us for, for service, for God, for the week that lies ahead. I've never been there. Some here I think have been to Israel. I haven't. Doubt I'll ever get there. But one place who would not mind going is to a place called Masada. Those uh, who you know Jewish history will know what Masada is. It's a place of tremendous significance to the Jewish people, to the Israeli nation, a place where they held out against the Roman invasion until finally they could not hold out anymore. And in 66 AD, or rather in 70 AD, when Jerusalem was destroyed, the last stronghold and people held out there as long as they could and then committed suicide. I don't know if they still do it, but for a number of years, inductees into the Israeli army were taken to Masada. And as they took their oath, they made this vow, Masada will never fall again. The remembrance of the death of heroes was fueling them for future service. As we come together to remember the Lord, among many other things it does, it directs us in our service for God and enables us to serve Him effectively, humbly, dependently for His glory. Now we'll trust God will bless His word. Speak to Him in prayer.